this August, in, gosh, two and a half weeks, my wife and I will celebrate our 13th wedding anniversary. And uh, if, if we rewind to 2009, so uh, by this point, we've been, we've been married a year, and my wife wants to do something uh, fun and special for our one-year wedding anniversary. So she suggested that we go see a Broadway musical at the Chicago Theater. And I was less than enthusiastic um, because I really don't like musicals, right? Um, I just, I don't get why the singing. I don't understand it. It's like, just say your line. Like, don't sing the line, just say it. It, it would take way less time. You'd have a lot more you know, room for plot development, stuff like that. I'm just not a big musical fan. So I was less than enthusiastic. Um, but we're a year into marriage. And so uh, even at this point, I'm like, this probably isn't the hill that I should die on, especially when it comes to my, to our, you know, wedding anniversary. So I look up the take, like I look up to see what's at the Chicago theater and Mary Poppins was in town. And I didn't really know much about Mary Poppins. I maybe had seen it on a VHS, like, when I was a kid, but I couldn't remember the storyline. I knew Dick Van Dyke was in it, but I didn't, you know, like whatever. It's a musical, so therefore I don't like it, right? But again, I'm not gonna die on this hill, so I order the tickets, and um, because the reality is, and you guys know this, like sometimes as a husband, you have, uh, you have to do something that you hate because you love your wife more than the thing that you hate that you're doing for her, you know what I mean? Like kind of how that balances out. And so the day finally came, we got all dressed up. We went to the Chicago Theater. We had like the, the in the very back, my, my head was hitting the back of the wall because when I ordered the tickets, I'm like, I'm not spending more than I have to on these tickets. And so we were in like the nosebleeds, you know, back here. And then the show starts and I was absolutely blown away. Like Mary Poppins comes like in the sky. I don't know how they did it. She comes flying in, you know, from the back of the room on her umbrella. I mean, Bert, the chimney sweep during step in time, like he's dancing, he's dancing, and then he walks up the wall. And I'm just like, what is going on? Like they have an anti-gravity machine up on stage. There has to be. And he's dancing on the ceiling. I mean, I'm just blown away. And so I walked into Mary Poppins totally grumpy, and I walked out like the biggest Mary Poppins fan ever. Judge me if you want, that's fine. But so you can imagine, so I had that experience in 2009. So fast forward nine years, you can imagine my excitement when they came out with the sequel, Mary Poppins Returns in 2018 with Emily Blunt. I don't know if you've seen that. You should. It's very good. Um, so I got very excited. Saving Mr. Banks is also really good too uh, with, with Tom Hanks. It's kind of the backstory of Mary Poppins. Anyways, I'm a fanboy, you can tell. So uh, I'm, I'm a convert, all right? So I'm, I'm evangelizing you for Mary Poppins right here, okay? Um, so the sequel comes out. It's fantastic. And in, in, the, in the Mary Poppins Returns, we're introduced to a new character. And this does, isn't going to spoil anything for you because you're all going to go watch it tonight. Um, Disney Plus, you will. And give yourself a little bit of time. So... Uh, this new character is introduced called Topsy. Now, Topsy is Mary Poppins' cousin, and she's a, she's a really odd character. She's a very eccentric kind of, kind of type, and apparently she's very handy because Topsy owns this little business that fixes, you know, small objects, you know, instruments and trinkets and stuff like that. And so Mary needs to take the children to Topsy because they have broken this porcelain bowl 
that needs fixed. And so everything is looking great until they realize that when they get to Topsy's house, that it happens to be the second Wednesday of the month, which for Topsy, that's a real problem because on every second Wednesday, everything in Topsy's house gets flipped totally upside down. Like the floor is on the ceiling, like everything is flipped upside down. And because it's a musical, they have to sing about it. And so Topsy on every second Wednesday sings Fast is slow, low is high, stop is go, and this is why. Every second Wednesday is a hurdle. From eight to nine, all is well. Then I roll over on my shell. And all because the world is turning turtle. Just imagine Meryl Streep, you know, in a sing-songy voice singing that. But turning turtle, I'd never, I'd never really heard that phrase. Apparently it's a, it's a phrase from the 1800s, which you can kind of imagine it, right? Where it... it it refers to something being capsized, something being turned over, something being overturned. And often it's used in reference to like a vulnerability that is then exposed when that thing is turned upside down, right? So if, if a king's kingdom has turned a turtle, it means not only has the king begun to lose his power, but he is also exposed and vulnerable to attack, right? And so the world is turning turtle. And what we've seen at this point uh, that, that, that whole advertisement for Mary Poppins was simply to express that by this point, we have seen in the book of Jonah that everything that you would expect uh, hasn't happened. I mean, I think, I think we're familiar enough, many of us, with the book of Jonah that we can kind of expect what's going to happen. But if you just put yourself in the shoes of reading this for the first time, especially in the mind of, of a Jewish audience, nothing that you expect to happen has happened to this point. Everything seems to have turned turtle. Everything seems to have gone upside down. And I mean, if you just think about it, like you have this book of prophecy that, in, in, that is more about the prophet than the prophecy. Who's the prophet whose whole job is to speak God's message to the people that God wants to hear them, that you have this prophet that instead of speaking, he's silent. Instead of going, he's running. That it's the pagan sailors, instead of the prophet of God, who truly cares about human life, right? We saw that in chapter one uh, on the boat, that it's through Jonah's death, as far as the sailors know. I mean, there's no indication that the sailors, you know, knew that he was hitching a submarine ride on the way back, you know, to where he was supposed to go. And so it's Jonah's death that, in fact, brings the sailors life, both, both physical and, as we also know, spiritual, as they become worshipers of Yahweh. And that's not enough to convince you that Jonah is totally... Uh, not meeting our expectations, you, you have the giant fish, right? This, this, uh, this mammal, you know, submarine that just takes Jonah, you know, back to where he was supposed to be. And that, so that's where we pick up on, on week three. Here in Jonah chapter three, it says this. So Jonah chapter two, verse 10, it says, then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Jonah three, verse one and the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And it's really easy, I think, for us to fly by that. But the reality is that uh, it would have been totally within God's right and within God's justice for chapter 3, verse 1 to not exist. That the reality is, is that we have a God of second chances. God didn't have to rescue Jonah 
He could have let Jonah sink to the bottom of the sea. And, and it's, I mean, it's possible what we'll see next week is that maybe Jonah actually would have preferred that. But God doesn't do that. He spares Jonah's life. And he gives him a second chance. Men, we worship a God of second chances. Even when it seems that you've plunged in the depths of despair, even though it seems that you're at the end of your rope, and maybe for some of you, it's very possible for some of you, that you have gotten uh, so to the end of your rope at some point in your life that you have even sought to end it. But even then, we have a God of second chances. We have a God that when you are in your darkest moment, he hasn't left. That even when you're, when you're in your lowest, darkest, ugliest, slimiest, I mean, Jonah certainly wasn't in good shape when he was spit out of the belly of the fish. Like, even when you are in your slimiest moment, you aren't too far gone for God to sovereignly spit you out onto his shores. For God to resurrect you from the depths of your despair. So Jonah... So God gives Jonah a second chance. He comes to Jonah a second time, and he tells him to go. And this time, it's, it's very mirrored language. You saw that in, in, uh, in week one in your study guide, that uh, we had you compare, like, like see how, how chapter one specifically and chapter three are really mirrors of each other um, in really interesting ways. But instead of God coming to Jonah in chapter one, telling him to arise, and Jonah flees, now in chapter three, God comes to Jonah, tells him, to rise and go, and Jonah goes. And he obeys the word of the Lord, goes just one day's journey into the city of Nineveh. We're told that, it's a, that, that the city is so big that it takes three days to actually you know, get, get the lay of the land in the city. But he only goes in one day, and he says, yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be demolished demolished this word literally means overturned like this is Jonah's equivalent you know if he's walking with Meryl Streep he's going you know hey guys your world's gonna turn turtle like that's what he's singing and and at this point I so this is a seven word sermon okay and at this point as I was reading through chapter three I I was like really that's it like after all of that Jonah like after all the running uh, after all the hiding, after all the praying, after the whole, you know, after the whole fish scenario, like, after the mercy of God shown to you to have you spent, after, I mean, just think about it. This is a 500-mile walk. The fish got him back to where he started. It didn't just take him right to the edge of Nineveh. Like, that's still a 500-mile walk. And after all of this, Jonah delivers probably the shortest seven-word evangelistic sermon recorded probably anywhere, at least in Scripture, right? But what can we learn from this seven-word sermon? I think there's a couple things. Now, it's hard to know. Um, it is hard to know whether this seven-word, the seven-word sermon we have here is like exactly like that was all, or whether it's a summary, right? We don't actually quite know that. Um, it's hard to know whether Jonah said, you know, said these seven words or, or you know, what the sermon that this seven-word summary was. It's hard to know whether he said it, like, with conviction and, like, spoke it out or whether he said it kind of begrudgingly and mumbling. I think, I think it's easy to kind of insert uh, a tone of voice in this, but we actually don't really know. We aren't given these answers, to these questions. But, we, but what we can know for sure 
uh, a few things about Jonah's message. The first thing is that uh, apparently, for what it lacked, for what it could have lacked in conviction, it made up for in clarity. Okay, it it was clear from Jonah's message that the people of Nineveh were in grave danger. Like, like what he said left very little to the imagination when it came to them recognizing the fact that they were in tremendous danger before a holy God. Now, what, what we can learn from this is uh, this is the kind of clarity that is necessary if we are going to share the gospel with people. I, I think far too often what can happen when it comes to uh, sharing uh, the gospel is that we can get distracted with the details, and in that, we can lose the core message of the gospel. And here's what I mean. For the first four years when, uh, when I came to Candeo, I was a worship leader here. And so uh, we, and this is still the case, if, if you want to join the, the worship team, which you are more than welcome, and if you play something, join the worship team. That'd be great. But what will happen is uh, you, you will get a link for the worship team application, and in that application, uh, what we ask people to do is to share their, to share their testimony, to share their, their, the story of them coming to faith. And what would happen is that um, it'd be very difficult to know, based on the, the, sto- the testimony that people would write out, whether they actually understood the gospel or not. And so in, to to try to help alleviate that, one thing that we added was not only share like your uh, testimony of, of, of coming to faith in Christ, but also if, if someone were to ask you, how do I come to faith in Christ, what would you say? Like we thought may, maybe that'll help bring some clarity. And you'd be amazed. Uh, and I'm not trying to like, like bash on, on people, but it was very interesting the kinds of things that people would say when you asked them for a very clear explanation of the gospel. I mean, you would get everything from, they'd write about their family, they'd write about an influential mentor, they'd write about growing up in the church, they'd write about how God had made them a better person, they'd write about like the sense of peace that they got when they read the Bible. Like, you, you would get all of these things but what, what often wouldn't be present in this explanation of their understanding of the gospel would be that I was a sinner before a holy God, I was dead in my sin, I was under his wrath, I deserved an eternity in hell, but God in his mercy sent Jesus Christ to live the perfect life that I should have lived, to die the death that I deserved, to take the wrath of God on my behalf, to rise again from the grave victoriously so that I could receive his righteousness, to ascend to the Father, and so that I could have hope one day of living an eternity with him and his people as he has grafted me into his family solely by his sheer grace. I mean, I'm, any part of that was often missing. You would often hear more about the person and what they were doing than about Jesus and what he did. And so, men, if, if we are going to be ministers of reconciliation, if we are going to be, to be messengers of God's good news of the gospel, then we must resolve to be clear with people about the present danger of their soul and the glorious grace that is available to them in Jesus Christ. Like the present danger and the grace. I think it can be, it can be easy to get soft on the danger side. Like 
if you don't repent, you will be destroyed. That, that is offensive. Uh, and so I think sometimes we can shy away from that and only talk about the benefits of God's grace in the sense of what we can experience it here and now and not the, the fact that there is, is an eternal present danger for the state of the soul of those who have not turned in faith to Jesus Christ. So for all the questions we have about Jonah's message and presentation, one thing is certain is that he was at least clear. Now another thing that we can see that's, it, that's it, incredibly clear, uh, probably more clear than even the first point, is that repentance and salvation are not based in the giftedness of the messenger. Seven words is all we have. But then you see verse five. So Jonah, Jonah gives his seven-word sermon. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Verse 5, then the people of Nineveh believed God. Notice that it doesn't say they believed Jonah. They believed God. Like they believed the word of God spoken through the mouth of Jonah. They believed God. Have you, have you ever had Pez? Do you remember Pez? Like the, <laughs> it's terrible candy, isn't it? It's barely candy. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure that they only made one batch of Pez candy in 1957, and they've been selling that same batch ever since. I mean, that has, it's, it was never fresh. There's no such thing as fresh Pez. I remember as a kid, I would get Pez, and the reason why I always got Pez wasn't because of the candy. The candy's terrible. It was simply because of the delivery method, right? You got, you got the a little dispenser with whatever animal, Looney Tunes head or whatever, you know. And it's such a weird way to dispense candy, too. Like, it's not even coming out of their mouth. It's coming out of their neck. Like, candy is shooting out of, out of the neck. You know, what a strange way. But the novelty of the, of the delivery method is really what, like, drew, you know, drew all of us. You know, you always talk about the dispenser. You never talk about the candy. I think sometimes what happens is that we think of the gospel... Um, uh, or at least gospel delivery, I think we see it in a lot of ways at times, like Pez, that instead of relying on the power of the message, we get really, really focused on the method of delivery. And this, this does a couple of things, okay? So the first thing that this can do is when you get really, really focused on the method of delivery and not focused on the message itself is the first thing that that can do is that we can begin to love dynamic messengers more than we actually love the message. And, and here, here's kind of how you, here's maybe how you can kind of know whether that's true of you or not. Is, is your um, interaction with, consumption of, uh, study of the Bible, does that mostly happen by you listening to other people tell you about the Bible? Or does that mostly happen by you sitting down for yourself, opening the scriptures for yourself, reading the scriptures for yourself, right? Like, if, if, if God's word is like Pez, then this actually is the candy. I'm not saying it's terrible, you know, but follow the analogy here with me. This is the candy, 
this is the, is the method, right? And so if you spend most of your time interacting with the Bible, listening to sermons, that's not a bad thing. Sermons are good. But if that's like your primary diet of scripture intake, then it's very, very likely that you actually like the, the, the delivery method more than the message. And, and what happens, and, and I'll just keep it local here, right? Um, there are a lot of people in the Cedar Valley who will go from church to church to church to church looking for a preacher that they like because of the, of, because of the dynamics, of the delivery method, of, uh, you know, just kind of when I go, I get, this, I get this kind of feeling, right? And that's, I'm not, I'm not like trying to diminish preaching. I love preaching, obviously. But too many people focus on the dynamics of the delivery method more than they focus on what is the actual message that is being proclaimed. You see, an adequate exposition of the scriptures is always greater than a, than a dynamic explanation of man's opinions. Always. Like, if, if, you, if you go into any context and hear just a, hopefully it's not bland, right? We, we as preachers try to, try to not, you know, give you a, an early nap on a Sunday, but an adequate explanation of the word of God is a thousand, million, billion times greater than a dynamic presentation of the thoughts and opinions of men, of a dynamic speaker. Guys, love the message more than you love the messenger. So that's the first thing we can see from Jonah's message that, uh, that the message is greater than the messenger. The second thing that we can see is that, is that sometimes uh, what can happen when we, when we put more faith in the messenger than we do in the message um, is that that'll often cause us to not share the, share the message at all. Like, part of the reason, my guess is, and it's not the only one, but part of the reason is that uh, the reason why many of us probably don't share the gospel is because we feel totally inadequate as messengers of the gospel, right? Like, I don't quite know what to say. I, what if they ask me a question I don't know? Um, what if I don't, you know, maybe get it exactly, you know, uh, laser-focused right? Um, what, what if I feel awkward? Um, or they think I'm weird? Like, like what we can do... Uh, when we care more about the messenger than the message, is that we can end up inadvertently acting as if the gospel needs a pretty package. Like in order for the gospel to be valuable, it needs to be packaged in a certain way. And since I can't package it in that way, then I probably am not the best person to actually share that message with that person, right? Now, this isn't to say, like, don't care about how you share the gospel. You know, I think... I think uh, Growing in ways to explain the gospel is, is, is uh, really helpful and is great, but don't get so caught up on you being the perfect messenger to think that the efficacy of the message is in your ability to present it. Open your mouth. God works through inadequate messengers, even more so because that just shows that when people actually responded, it had nothing to do with you. <laughs> Like, you didn't, you didn't save them. I mean, in one sense, you did in that you, like, shared the message, right? But it wasn't actually you. 
It was God's grace. Salvation is in the message, not in the messenger. And this, this is our confidence when, when even really influential people in our lives, and, and maybe, maybe it's that person that shared the gospel with you for the first time. Maybe, maybe it's that pastor that, that you came to faith like under their leadership and their preaching, or maybe it's just it's that that pastor from a distance, right? Where you have these. Um, I mean, we all maybe not all of us, but like, uh, I mean, I can just go through the names of of maybe the more famous you know men. You can probably think of some too, uh, who have fallen away from their faith or who have shipwrecked their faith because of moral failings, and that can often have a real. Um, it can be a very difficult thing. If you are really influenced by somebody who ends up not being the person that it seemed that they were, who ends up abandoning the faith that they first shared with you, this is the confidence because the saving power is in the message, not in the messenger. This means that even when the really influential people in our lives, if they walk away from the faith, that it doesn't shipwreck our faith because our confidence is not in the faithfulness of the messenger. But it's in God's faithfulness through the message. So Jonah chapter 3, verse 5. Let's read this to the end of the chapter. It's a short chapter. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn away, each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Verse 10, God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened with them. He had threatened them with, and he did not do it. What's the point of Jonah chapter 3? The point of Jonah chapter 3 is that God works through inadequate messengers and is merciful to repentant sinners. That's the point. God works through inadequate messengers and is merciful to repentant sinners. So what... We, see, we say repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is turning away and returning to a previous location. It's turning away and returning to a previous location. Returning to a previous state when, when things were right. Like if you have kids, you know all too well uh, that there's a difference between remorse and repentance. Like one, one of my kids, who will, re, who will remain nameless, uh, is very, very, very good at really quickly apologizing. Really, I mean, I'm not even done explaining to them what they did wrong. It's, already, it's always, sorry, 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 my bad, sorry. I'm like, you, you don't even know what you're saying sorry for yet, right? But, so the apology is really just to get me off of their back. You know, like, they're just like, I don't want to deal with this. I just want to move on. I think what you want to hear is sorry, so I'm going to say sorry. And, it, and it's, it's almost immediately, often, not all the time, but almost immediately that they are back to doing the very thing that I have just talked to them about, right? 
There is a difference between remorse and repentance. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way. He says, there's a tendency for Christians to assume that repentance is experienced before faith and leads to faith. But this view is due to a misunderstanding. It tends to confuse conviction with conversion. Tends to confuse mourning for sin with turning away from sin, which is the hallmark of repentance. Furthermore, the real repentance which brings life accompanies faith rather than causes it. We see here in Jonah chapter 3 that it wasn't and just enough that they put on sackcloth and sat in ashes. That wasn't enough. Like, the king didn't just stop at, hey, don't eat or drink anything. Like, like fast and put on sackcloth. Like, express your mourning for your sin. What does he say? He says, do that. That's good. Like, have, have remorse and repent, like, remorse for your sin, but also turn from your evil ways. Like, it's mourning for sin, and it's also turning from sin. See, it wasn't enough that they just put on sackcloth and fasted. But this display of their sorrow for their sin also needed to translate into turning from their sin. Men, do you hate your sin? I mean, do you really hate it? Do you you hate your pornography? Do you hate your masturbation? Do you hate your arrogance? Do you hate your sharp words? Maybe you say, Jake, I I think I do, but honestly, I have been struggling with this sin for years and years and years, decades upon decades. I mean, it would take a miracle for me to be able to break free from this sin. Can I just let you in on a little secret, if that's you? The miracle that you're waiting for to break free from the sin that you need to repent of isn't yet to happen. It has already happened. How do, how do I know this? I know this from the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 12. Jesus says in response to the scribes and Pharisees asking once again for a sign because what Jesus had already done in their midst wasn't enough. Jesus says this, he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, the son of man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah was here. What is he saying? He's saying that if you need a miracle to repent, look no further than the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. That is the sign of Jonah. That just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights and was then resurrected from that fish in the same exact way Jesus Christ was in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. And on the third day, he resurrected from the grave. You see, where Jonah was a half-hearted prophet, Jesus was a wholehearted savior. Where Jonah, was, where Jonah went into the city just a third of the way, just a third of the way, Jesus threw his whole self into our humanity, went to the cross and bore our wrath 
and rose again from the grave three days later. This is the, this is the power, this is the miracle you have been looking for to repent from your sins. You say, I, I can never change. I say, God's the only one that doesn't change. And you're not God. So because God is the only one that is unchanging, that means that you can. Men, what sin are you coddling? What evil affections? What, what selfish attitudes? What conduct are you tolerating? Men, this morning, look to Jesus, the true and greater messenger of God, and turn from your sin. Let's not be men who constantly confess our sin and do nothing about it. You've probably been in that connection group, right? You're sitting around the table, and it seems like, it, it, and maybe this is you. It's like you go around, you're, you're, you're sharing your struggles, you're confessing your sin, and you keep saying the same thing, the same thing, the same thing. But if somebody asked you, what have you done this week about that sin, I think often the answer would be, well, nothing. Men, let's be men of repentance. Not because we have, like, not by sure willpower, because we are men who constantly look to the finished work of Christ. We're constantly reminded of the true and greater messenger who brings us the message of grace and mercy because he took our wrath. To not repent is to choose destruction. But to repent is to receive mercy from our holy and glorious God who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love.